The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see all of you here in chapel. Uh, excited about the presentation that you'll hear in just a bit. And I know that you're excited that we've turned the corner into the last two weeks of classes. So uh, trust that the Lord will give you grace and strength equal to the days that are in front of you that you would be able to finish well and uh, to enjoy uh, one another and uh, the beautiful weather and the campus for the time that we have remaining this semester. I want to read a passage of scripture from the book of Psalms, Psalm 46, and then I want to pray and I'll introduce our speaker. This is the word of the Lord. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the most holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we do come before you. We praise you. We, we exalt you. We proclaim your holiness as we have just sung and we recognize that you alone are our fortress, our refuge. In you alone should we put our trust. For you are worthy of that trust and worthy of our faith, worthy of our following. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us individually, to us collectively, and in this world. We are mindful of your loving kindness to all generations, and that your mercies are new every morning. We pray for the grace to be thankful for all these things and the days that you give us. We thank you for the times in which we find ourselves. Though there is tension and division and conflict and uncertainty and fear and anxiety and needs beyond measure, we recognize that you are the creator and sustainer of life. We pray, Father, as we serve you in a broken and fallen world, that we would be mindful of your great power and majesty and holiness. Father, I thank you for the students of this institution, and I pray that you would give them grace. In these final days of the semester, allow them to manage their time and priorities, give them strength equal to their task. For the faculty and staff who have been serving in a in a difficult and unusual year, we thank you for them and we pray that you would continue to give them strength to serve to the end of this term well and in a way that is pleasing to you. 
Father, we thank you for the friends and supporters of this institution. We pray that you would bless and encourage them, make us a blessing and encouragement to them as well. Father, we pray for the needs around us, for the needs in our own body, for those that are struggling physically or emotionally, we pray for grace and strength. For the needs of our community, we pray that you would meet them according to your will, that you would give us the opportunity to serve our neighbors well. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray for the conflict, for the tensions that exist socially and culturally, racially, politically. We pray, Father, that you would give your people, the church, the, the boldness to live out and to proclaim the good news of Jesus in a world that is divided and full of conflict. Father, we pray for the world at large, for the needs that exist around the globe needs that are at times overwhelming. We thank you for your servants who are laboring in your fields around the world, and we pray that you would continue to give them grace and wisdom and strength. We pray that you would embolden your church to, again, live out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world in so desperate need. Father, we thank you for the privilege to know you, to be known by you, and to serve you. We pray that you would make us mindful of that great privilege even in the midst of our studies here. Give us a sense of what you were doing in the larger world, that it might inspire us, that it might motivate us, that it might call us to an obedient life of service wherever you have placed us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It's my pleasure and privilege to introduce our speaker this morning. She has spoken in chapel before. Uh, she and her family are friends of uh, my wife and our family, as well as of the university. Leslie Dahl is someone who uh, embodies the mission of this university in a very real and profound and practical way. She and her husband, Bob, who serves on the board of trustees, have four children, four grown children. Leslie holds an MBA from uh, SMU and uh, has uh, worked in the uh, markets in New York City prior to uh, raising her family. And then a number of years ago, the Lord began to open doors for Leslie to serve in use her skills and abilities, her adventurous spirit, her love for the Lord and his church to do some strategic analysis and prioritization for ministries around the world in some of the most difficult places in the world. In fact, Leslie leaves this evening for Baghdad. So uh, she is someone who knows the needs of the world in a very real sense. She has traveled the globe. She has helped Christian ministries prioritize and allocate resources to areas of strategic need. Uh, but above all of those things in her skill set. It is her love for the Lord and his word and his church uh, that is always an encouragement to me whenever I get time with Leslie. So please give a warm Cairn University welcome to our friend Leslie Dahl. Thanks, Todd. That was a really gracious introduction. Um, it's such a joy to be here with you all, and I'm glad to be able to share a little bit of my recent journey uh, with the Lord. The topic of my talk this morning is Christian witness, a life worthy of the gospel. Paul tells us in Philippians 1, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for him. 
I've been thinking a lot about this verse um, over the past few years as I've been learning a lot about this topic. While our country is pretty self-obsessed right now and Christian witness is not only being challenged but it is also quite challenging in the current environment, I'd like us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus but move across the globe for a testimony of remarkable faithfulness in the sacred land of the Middle East, an even more challenging place for the gospel witness but also a great a place of great encouragement. My husband Bob and I live in Princeton, New Jersey and have three adult children and one um, uh, daughter-in-law. So we do have four. Um, Bob is a stock market strategist and an equity investment manager. And before, before kids, I was a stock trader. We come from and live in the world of business in New York City on Wall Street. But that doesn't mean we don't live to minister the gospel to a world in need of the good news. I'm not a cleric, nor a pastor, nor a missionary. I'm not a theologian or an academic, nor do I run an NGO. But as a Christian, who God is seeing fit to prosper in the business world, the resulting stewardship call on my life is giving me a unique and significant role to play in the, king, in the mission of God. A few years ago, Bob and I joined Strategic Resource Group, a partnership of high-capacity peers, mostly business people, committed to the Great Commission in the Middle East. With a long-standing network of indigenous ministry partners, a rigorous due diligence process, including extensive research, reporting, and time on the ground, we're able to invest in the most impactful kingdom ministry projects and programs in the region. As a resource partner, I'm not only stewarding financial resources to bring living water to a dry and thirsty land, but I've been given the opportunity to go, to get in the trenches, to meet our ministry partners, to see with my own eyes and understand and assess the impact of the work God is doing in and through them. Many of you are preparing to serve in ministry and know way more than I do about how God is working among the nations in these last days. And these last days are rough. In the turbulent Middle East, you all know that we have the horrific effects of ISIS in Iraq, a war in Syria that has left the country and its people completely devastated and in need of everything a refugee crisis that many are saying is leading to a lost generation of children and youth, crippling massive explosion coupled with government corruption in Beirut, young people all over the region losing hope for a future, sadly buried alive in lies, and the constant and brutal persecution of Christians. Since the onslaught of ISIS in 2014, as partners in Strategic Resource Group, Bob and I have done a deep dive with pastors, churches, and indigenous ministries in Iraq, Lebanon, and Jordan, partnering in some pretty intense refugee relief and gospel-centered efforts. In spending time in the region and bearing witness, I've gotten pretty used to wearing body armor, shooting AK-47s, giving cigarette bribes in order to pass through arm checkpoints, and watching Apache helicopters drop bombs. But what I haven't gotten used to is sitting with the 15-year-old Yazidi girls who just escaped their ISIS owners after three years of captivity as sex slaves and crying with them because their sisters and mothers are still missing, haunted by the memories of ISIS beheading their fathers. Or the tears of the priests whose churches were turned into weapons arsenals, shooting ranges, slave markets, and then torched with chemical explosives. Or the pleading faces of thousands of people who have almost lost hope that anyone in the world even knows or cares about them. And yet, in all of these difficulties, I've seen unimaginable hope and joy alongside the pain and sharing time and tears together. Back in August 2014, 
50,000 Assyrian Christians fled Karakosh, a village just a few miles from Mosul in Iraq, when ISIS attacked and told them to convert, flee, or die. They literally ran for their lives and fled to Erbil, 50 miles away, on foot, with only the clothes on their backs. The refugees were everywhere, in the streets, in abandoned buildings, in parks, in churches, outside in church yards, and even in shopping malls. Karakosh was liberated in October 2016 after two years of occupation by ISIS. Our team went with Father Ignatius to Karakosh to bear witness to the evil acts of ISIS just nine days after it was liberated. The town was a pile of rubble. Accompanied by our security team of Kurdish Peshmerga soldiers and wearing body armor because all of the bombs had not yet been cleared from the town, we went with Father Ignatius to his home and his church. What we saw was unimaginable. For the past two years, his home had been home to a number of ISIS militants. Their clothes, their food, their cigarettes, and their Qurans were left behind in the bedrooms, along with stacks of ISIS propaganda. There was a giant pile of dirt in his living room next to a tunnel they had dug to get around safely and escape detection and coalition bombs. Father Ignatius was visibly shaken. Then he took us to his church, which was even more painful for him than seeing his home. The bell tower had been toppled to the ground. The church was completely burned out and black. The pews were chopped up. The blessed statue of Jesus had been beheaded. We could smell the residue of the C4 gas that ISIS used. Piles of torn and burned Bibles and other church books were everywhere. Thousands of bullet casings littered the courtyard. Clothing shop mannequins and baby dolls on posts were all over the place, all shot up. ISIS had used them for target practice. The churchyard had been turned into a bomb-making factory with an intact assembly line of bomb casings, fertilizer, gunpowder, and instructions on how to assemble the bombs. Impossible. These ancient Christians, who can trace their roots back to biblical times when St. Thomas brought the gospel to Mesopotamia and who still speak dialects of Aramaic, have been among the most persecuted by ISIS. And yet, these Christians, largely abandoned by the world, have not lost their faith in God. Their deep and abiding faith is all they have, and it is on powerful display through tears, but also through testimony of God's presence with them in this terrible storm. One moment I will never, ever forget was when Father Ignatius walked out through the rubble to the church bell lying in a heap, and with great conviction, he reached down and rang that bell loudly, reminding us of the sure hope to which we cling and proclaiming that God is faithful and would bring them home. The hope he expressed in Jesus that day really touched me and caused me to remember that these ancient Christians are from the part of the world where the good news was born and was raised from the dead. The courageous Christians in the Middle East are truly the hands and feet of God and the heart of Jesus in the realities of today. The intimate glimpses that the Gospels give us into the ministry of Jesus are filled with personal one-on-one -on -one encounters that Jesus has with individuals whose lives he completely transforms. With a personal touch or a word, Jesus went to the suffering and healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind and raised the dead one by one. And one by one he looked and saw and healed the spiritual suffering. Zacchaeus in a tree, the woman at the well, the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, and the dying thief on the cross. Jesus had then, and still has now, a heart for the suffering and brokenhearted, and uses personal, intimate interactions for healing. 
The gospel was good news in the scriptures because Jesus himself took the time to sit and see and save broken lives. Sometimes these great miracles seem small to us, but God delights in taking the small things, making them big. Don't forget, five loaves and two fish fed a multitude. Jesus, a baby in a manger, and then a refugee in Egypt saved the world. Zechariah 4 says it very clearly. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. For who hath despised the day of small things? And so it is with refugees, and I would add widows and orphans. Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 10 this, For the Lord your God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. God's heart beats for the most vulnerable, and so our hearts beat for them too. We were in Iraq last year and went to Mosul to visit some widows being ministered to by Pastor Malat's uh, Christian Missionary and Alliance Church in Erbil. His church kept its doors open wide to Iraqi and Syrian refugees fleeing ISIS, many of whom now know Jesus. Now that Mosul has been liberated and people are returning, the church continues to minister to the needs there. One special project we're supporting is to a large camp of widows whose husbands were all either murdered or kidnapped by ISIS. Iraqi law requires that a physical body be produced as evidence of death within five years in order to receive the special pension due to widows. However, in many cases, ISIS either kidnapped the men, dumped the bodies into mass graves, or blew them up. So these widows and their families are suffering alone with no help from anyone. What a blessing to see the faithfulness of Pastor Malat's church in Erbil making regular visits to a number of widows, bringing them food and care and hope from God's word. It was amazing to sit and pray with the widows, to listen as Jesus was proclaimed the heavenly healer of every wound and loss, and to see the widows and their families beginning to understand who Jesus is and his deep, deep love for them. This family is a mom and at least seven children. Five of them are deaf, mute, and severely disabled, a sad result of generational intermarriage in the family. The husband was beheaded by ISIS, and his brother was blown to pieces by a bomb just outside their home. The wife is now caring for all these children on her own. This is just one story. There are thousands more. The once great city of Mosul has been reduced to a pile of broken stones and broken lives. In considering the enormity of it all, I'm reminded of the words of one of our ministry partners. He said, rebuilding a building is one thing, but how do you rebuild a human being? There's only one hope, and we are grateful to Pastor Malat and his church for not only um, caring and providing, but for building the foundation of truth and the hope of Jesus into the lives of widows in Mosul. You know, in reflecting on the ministry to the widows, I realized that being a widow is sadly normal in Iraq. But G.K. Chesterton warned us. He said, the things we see every day are the things we never see at all. They become invisible. In the book of Acts, we're told of the man lame from birth who was laid at the temple gate daily for some 40 years. In all those years and all the times Peter went to the temple, the two apparently never met. But then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and his life was never the same. After Pentecost, Peter went to the temple and directed his gaze at the lame man, and he was healed. God looked at him. The widows, the orphans, and the aliens are the heartbeat of God, and the lame man 
And like the lame man, God sees them, he loves them, and he will call them his own through the faithfulness of the blessed body of Christ. While in Iraq last year, we followed up with a camp of Yazidi refugees we are helping through a local Iraqi pastor. Yazidis are neither Christian nor Muslim. Their religion predates Christianity with Zoroastrian roots and has taken on elements of many religions. The Yazidis are particularly hated and persecuted by ISIS. To date, thousands have been murdered, and about 3,000 women and girls remain in captivity as sex slaves of ISIS. We were in this Yazidi camp, and we went into a small tent where two young girls were displaying some simple watercolor paintings that they had taped to the tent wall. The majority of the paintings depicted women and children in some sort of prison cell, arms and legs chained tightly, tears streaming from their faces, with a bearded ISIS man dressed in black standing over them with a gun or a knife. These girls are traumatized. The refuge and rescue, forgiveness and restoration they need cannot be delivered in the back of a pickup truck. True healing can only be delivered through the word of God, the resurrection and the life, the balm in Gilead. SRG is blessed to join with the American Bible Society to equip the church in the region to minister his holy word of healing through their Bible-based trauma healing program. You know, being in the tent with the precious Yazidi girls and their pain in the paintings, I was overwhelmed at the potential to reach thousands for Christ while leading them right into the loving arms of Jesus who will give them a hope and a future. This is a glorious hope for a refugee population drowning in a sea of sorrow and despair. We can make a difference because Jesus is the difference. The Yazidis and so many others are suffering in unimaginable and horrific ways, and God has placed his body, his heart, his life there with them as the lifeline of rescue. Day by day, I'm learning, so it is with God. The cross that brought deep pain, suffering, and death ultimately led to the most unexpected and glorious resurrection to eternal life, not just for Jesus, but for you and for me and even the Yazidis. You know, Luke 5, 4 tells us this. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, push out into deep water and let your nets out for a catch. In those deep waters, Simon caught a huge haul of fish, straining the nets beyond capacity. And then Jesus said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We were in Baghdad last January, and for over a year, I'd been wanting to go to Sadr City, a giant slum on the outskirts of Baghdad and home to three million Shia Muslim fanatics, fiercely loyal to the Shia cleric Muqtada al-Sadr. We were told that the people there are so radical, they would slit their own throats if Muqtada al-Sadr ordered it. During the war that started in 2003, Sadr City was quite dangerous and was where many firefights with American troops took place. SRG is considering a project through a Christian Missionary Alliance church ministering to widows in Sadr City. And for months I've been asking to go there, but the security team's answer is always no way. Kidnapping is quite an issue there. But on our last day in Baghdad in January, Ely and Omar said to me, okay, we'll go. Omar is our security guy, and Ely serves with a pastor at the CMA church. Ely grew up in Sadr City, and his big family still lives there. Ely was one of those fanatics serving in Muqtada al-Sadr's Mahdi army against the Americans. After some time in the Mahdi army, Ely had a powerful encounter with Jesus, who changed his heart, saved his soul, and transformed his life. God did a mighty work, and now Ely serves him in the CMA church with Pastor Joseph, but his family is still in Sadr City, aligned with and surrounded by the fanatics. 
Omar and Ely took me to visit Ely's family in the heart of Sadr City. Armed but assured, honestly, the only tense time was driving by the Meridian Market, an outdoor souk where Ely said we could buy anything in the world, guns, bombs, passports, even a kidney. Well, that's pretty sketchy. But we walked right through God's open door into a family and world in need of Jesus. They had never had a visitor from America like me, and now we're family. They're not really refugees, but they are aliens, alienated from God and captives of Islam, bound in chains of lies. When Jesus said to Andrew and Peter in Matthew 4:19, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, I believe he meant for them to follow him to places like Sadr City. Jesus is there waiting for his fishermen to join him. Charles Spurgeon said this, those who navigate little streams and shallow creeks know but little of the God of tempests, but they who do business in great waters, these see his wonders in the deep. Friends, we are fishing in deep waters and we're seeing great wonders. Despite the difficulties and pain in the Middle East, our ministry partners are hearing the overwhelming claim of Habakkuk 1.5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. And so it is with God, always doing something we can hardly believe. The brutal beheading of the 21 Coptic martyrs in Libya in 2015 seemed like the greatest tragedy for them, their families, and for their community. But it has turned out to be one of the greatest acts of gospel witness in the 21st century. What looked like the greatest tragedy of all time in the eyes of men 2,000 years ago God used to save the world. God is on the throne and is about his redeeming work of building and bringing his kingdom, the kingdom of God, in his way, through suffering. I was in Mosul in July 2017 during the final days of the battle against ISIS. We visited a church that ISIS had completely bombed out and shattered, going so far as to paint the ISIS flag on the front and blast the marble to pieces with sledgehammers. The church was devastated. It was as though by destroying every symbol of Christianity and destroying the lives of every Christian possible, ISIS believed that Christ could be defeated. I remember that day, standing in the church, wearing body armor and watching and hearing Apache helicopters dropping the bombs of death over Mosul, trying to find the hope in it all. And then, in looking way up high to the cupola of the dome that was virtually unreachable, we saw this beautiful, the beautiful face of Jesus untouched. This painting had overcome the destruction and evil of ISIS and was a reminder that despite what we see all around us, Jesus is above all things and he is alive. What a great hope we have. I count it a blessing and a privilege to have such a clear stewardship call on the resources God has entrusted to Bob and me. But the bigger blessing is the clear stewardship call in my life to go and see and do to be joined with our Lord in his heartbeat of love for those who are made in his image, who are suffering and lost in the darkness and in need of the light of the world. I don't know about you, but Bob and I often struggle with the application of Jesus's words to the man in Mark chapter 10. He says to go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, then come and follow me. How do we do that faithfully? What does it look like? I think part of the key, at least for me, is actively pressing life upon life in the here and now where it's real, even if it's hard. I believe the following to be true. God will not look you over for medals, degrees, or diplomas, but for scars. 
I have medals and degrees and diplomas, but I wonder if I have enough scars. Our Christian brothers and sisters in the Middle East are wearing the stripes of Jesus. Having been to dozens of refugee camps and heard more stories than my heart can bear, I'm more convicted than ever of the urgency of the gospel. The opportunity is now, and the opportunity is great, but so are the challenges. God has put each one of us in this room on the front line of his work here in the U.S. and all around the world. I've been on the front line, and the front line is a tough place. While in Iraq, I went with one of our ministry partners to a project ministering to Kurdish Peshmerga soldiers, freedom fighters, serving on the front line of defense against ISIS near Kirkuk. At a distance of just one, one kilometer from ISIS, I had a small taste of what these soldiers experienced day after day, a courageous passion for their cause, which is the defense of their people and their land, but also the reality of the cost of acting on this passion, their very lives. The front line is a tough place, the place he has called his body to serve. Success will require showing up and kneeling down, going lower as he is lifted higher. I love what Anne Boskamp has written. This bleeding, broken planet will taste healing not because more of us tried to climb ladders to be seen, but more of us went lower and saw the face of Christ in those who were too often unseen. I've spent a lot of time in Iraq over the past five or six years with the devastation caused by ISIS. Over a million people in refugee camps looking for a ray of hope, churches and homes completely destroyed, cities and villages reduced to piles of stones and rocks. But we have hope and we take heart in the words of scripture, which tells us that rocks are important, rocks are valuable, rocks will be used to build the church. In Matthew 16, 18, our Lord said, and I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus Christ is the rock, the sure foundation upon which he builds his church. All the powers of hell, destruction, and death, and even ISIS will attack but never crush the church of Jesus Christ. The future of Christianity in the Middle East is in God's hands. According to the Great Commission, we believe that through the faithful ministry of all the Christians in the region, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the light of life, will break through the darkness, and many Muslims will be the rocks that God uses to finish building his church in the days to come. We continue to pray for them because we know that prayer makes a difference. You know, as I was considering the faithful witness in the Middle East, I remember reflecting on the fact that for the past 1,300 years, since the onslaught of Islam in the 7th century, the greatest prayer meeting in all the world has been taking place. Muslims have been praying five times a day for 1,300 years. This really is a spiritual battle that will only be won by the prayers of God's people and his work through the body of Christ. The Christians in the Middle East are surrounded on every side by the powers and principalities of this dark world. In considering their costly witness, I'm confronted with Mark Batterson's words from his book, All In. He said this, when did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? That faithfulness is holding the fort? That playing it safe is safe? That there is any greater privilege than sacrifice? That radical is anything but normal? Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. He died to make us dangerous. God may not call me to suffer or die for my faith in him, but surely he's calling me to live it. He's calling all of us to live the lifeline of the cross of rescue, whatever the cost. 
What a privilege it is to stand, to sit, kneel, and stay in this sacred land with our faithful brothers and sisters who see with eyes of faith, feel with God's heartbeat of love, and truly live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as our own country is increasingly under siege, may we look to the courage of our brothers and sisters as worthy models of faithfulness. Thank you. Well, thank you for letting me share, um, and I guess you all are dismissed. God bless you all.